new wave of mass migration to Europe uh, might be building up according to several indicators. Is the EU better prepared now than during the refugee crisis in 2015? Or could this looming crisis be a new threat to the EU that will come on top of the war in Europe? Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine has, of course, been the number one issue when talking about European security the last six months. This has led to a military buildup and changes in several countries' traditional security policy orientation. And now we all fear a potential escalation of the war, an escalation that might lead to further human suffering and new waves of refugees from Ukraine. Even though the main concern of European security is now to be found in the eastern neighborhood, we all know that the migration pressure from the south has not disappeared. We're now facing a dangerous cocktail of war in Ukraine, a looming global economic recession, food crisis, climate change, and a serious deterioration of the security situation in many countries in Africa, such as Mali, Libya, as well as in Afghanistan and several countries in the Middle East. All this is a strong indication that a new wave of mass migration will hit Europe once again. The question is if Europe is prepared for this. My name is Panile Riked and I'm a research professor at NUPI and the head of NUPI Center for European Studies. And I will be your host for this episode of The World Stage. With me, I'm very happy to have Professor Kristen Kaunich, German-Irish Irish-British political scientist and Chamonet professor specialized in European security. Christian is a professor of international security at Dublin City University and professor of uh, policing and security at the University of South Wales. Welcome to you, Christian. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. One of the first implications of the war uh, for Europe and the EU was the need to take care of and help the refugees coming from Ukraine. And the impression that we all had was that this refugee crisis was handled far better uh, than what was the case in 2015 when Europe experienced mass migration from the south. So first of all, um, I would like to ask you if you agree with that assessment and maybe also you can explain for the listeners a little bit what was the main element uh, or what has been the main elements of of Europe's response to this this first wave of of migration from Ukraine or refugees coming from Ukraine, excuse me. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much for the question. I think it's a it's a very interesting question because, of course, it's something that's been on a, a lot of people's minds how has Europe uh, been dealing with this particular issue? Uh, how is that compared to 2015? Now, I would say I would partially agree with what you said, but let me just kind of um, explain what I mean by that. Because really, when we look at 2015, people kind of lump it all together into one crisis, a crisis that was linked to the uh, mass migration, as you rightly put it, um, very significant number of asylum seekers that entered Europe via uh, Turkey, or but also via uh, um, Italy, and 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 really um, more than like Germany, for instance, had uh, numbers that were reaching 1.5 million. Um, a lot of other European countries really had very very significant numbers that applied for asylum. Subsequently, also the Scandinavian countries, of course, and so on. Um, but really, what happened then? was more like a twin or even a triple crisis because we had the crisis in terms of 
numbers. And what is associated with the numbers is, is of course, the administrative crisis. How do you deal with these people? They need housing, they need shelter, they need opportunities for work, they need opportunities for education, they need opportunities for health care. So there's a lot of administrative issues that are entangled um, when you have a large number of people suddenly arriving. So there was certainly that crisis. But the EU at the time, in addition to that administrative crisis, also had a political crisis, a political crisis in the sense that EU member states couldn't really agree how to handle that. There was, of course, the push to try and distribute numbers more evenly across different EU member states. And I'm saying evenly in inverted commas, because even the feeble attempt at distributing it evenly wasn't really very even. It was still kind of like balancing it more than really making it even. But um, the EU couldn't really agree, the EU member states couldn't really agree on any of that, even though instruments were adopted, a distribution mechanism was adopted, and, um, and still EU member states, ultimately there were a number of member states, particularly from Eastern Europe, that did not accept that mechanism, even though it was adopted in a legal way. <clears throat> And as a result of that, we, we actually came to an impasse. So this impasse couldn't be totally overcome. So Europe was kind of lingering along. There was an administrative crisis. There was a political crisis. And subsequently, there was kind of a domestic political crisis in a number of member states. Um, if you look at Germany in particular, you see that uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel was particularly held responsible for her more optimistic approach at the beginning of the crisis, a more humanitarian approach that she was then, uh, in a sense, reproached for towards uh, the end when we also had a number of terror attacks. We had a terror attacks, uh, of course, in Paris, in Brussels, in Berlin, a number of other countries, when suddenly the mood started changing. And in a sense, the crisis was then also linked to some of those terror attacks. Now, <laughs> if we take each of those aspects and compare that to what happened with Ukraine, we can see that some aspects of that were handled better. So for, for instance, if we just look at the political crisis, very clearly the EU was much, much more united than it was in 2015. The EU very quickly agreed that um, Ukrainians could enter the EU without the requirement for visa. Uh, even countries that were not in Schengen, such as the Republic of Ireland, accepted that. So even um, Ukrainians could arrive in Ireland without the need for a visa. Um, so all of that was handled better. And also the EU agreed that in the one of the instruments that it had never used, a kind of temporary protection, a case of mass migration mm -hmm. instrument, that most people had even forgotten existed because it was actually an instrument that was adopted just after the, the, the former Yugoslav wars. It has never, ever been uh, used. Um, and there was even discussion last year, well, before the war in Ukraine, there was discussion to even abolish the instruments because it had never been used. Now, for the first time ever, it was used. So that shows the extent to which politically Europe was united. Now, this is the good news, if, if, if you like. <laughs> and I think that's why I wanted to start with the good news, because on that front, we really have to say the EU did very well, and Europe managed to handle the political dimension of that crisis very well. Now, my assessment of the way in which it was handled administratively is much less positive, because if we look at the build-up of the war, 
we can see that there was a huge denial that Russia was going to attack Ukraine for several months. The Americans were constantly trying to explain to the Europeans that the Russians were going to attack. And you've just heard it recently when Borrell was saying how, how Blinken was actually calling him several days beforehand and, and was telling him, look, they're going to attack. And he couldn't see any of that in his own assessments that his yeah. own ambassadors were providing him. I think that was symptomatic of how the entire build-up to the war was handled more generally. Mm. And I fully agree with him. And I, I don't mean to hit out individual ambassadors that were not providing the reports. <laughs> but I think there was a general agreement in most of Europe that war cannot happen because it had never happened in Europe. The whole EU identity is built on the idea that war cannot happen. Therefore, war will not happen. And therefore, there was a certain element of denial that war will actually happen. So even in the face of reality, where we were seeing that, you know, the Russians were already building up the military inside of Belarus, they mm -hmm. had already had the hybrid warfare situation with Belarus in uh, uh, autumn of last year, where the Russians were behind in terms of pushing a number of Uh, refugees from Iraq and, and also from Turkey and from Afghanistan into Poland. At the time, it was seen very clearly that Russia was testing the waters, how Europe would be able to handle a very, very strong refugee crisis. So all of that was happening. Russia was amassing its troops all around the border of Ukraine. And in the face of all of that evidence, most policymakers in Europe were totally in denial that the mm -hmm. war was going to happen. So I think in that sense, now, why is that problematic? Well, it's problematic from a security point of view in terms of helping Ukraine and so on. But even if we disregard that aspect of how that's problematic in security terms, it's very problematic in terms of preparing for an administrative crisis that is going to happen once war starts. If we look at You know, Europeans were extraordinarily generous when it came to Euro Ukrainians coming into Europe. And some countries, notably like Poland, that was not very generous at all in 2015, they were really showing their generosity when it comes to Ukrainians. At some point, there were like almost 5 million Ukrainian refugees in Poland. But if you then look at the situation in which it was being handled, a lot of those people were living on individual people's sofas, somewhere in an apartment in Warsaw and other parts of Poland, which shows the, the element of generosity of those people. But what it also shows is the total lack of planning, forward planning in administrative mm -hmm. terms, how you are going to deal with people. Because the Americans... Before the war had even started, the CIA already had developed a kind of scenario in which they were expecting at least 9 million refugees. And the Europeans were totally in denial of that fact. Now, the mm -hmm. crisis as it unfolded was far worse than the 9 million that the CIA was predicting. Like we're talking about possibly 15, 16, 17, 18 million people that are displaced in Ukraine. So that doesn't mean they've all come into the EU, but it means a lot of them are still in Western parts of Ukraine. But what it means is that there is a potential for all of those people eventually to come to the EU should the situation in all parts of the Ukraine deteriorate. And if we look at that from the administrative perspective, there was no forward planning at all in terms of how can you handle 
potentially 10, 12, 15 million people, which is in a sense, a number that Europe has never dealt with since Second World War. It's an incredible, huge number in administrative terms, like something that we've, in our own lifetime, we've never seen. Um, and this should have scared policymakers into thinking through what would you do if that really happens. And unfortunately, because there was this denial at the beginning that war is never going to happen, there was no forward planning in terms of, well, if it does happen, how can we deal with that in administrative terms? Which means that mm. when the crisis then hit, they were totally reliant on people's generosity. But the state was largely absent from managing this. It was totally reliant on individuals. And, and if you just... Remember back at the beginning of the crisis, in a lot of European countries, what they were doing was asking people who's willing to take refugees in their own house without thinking through whether this can be a long-term situation for a war that might last two, three, four years. So this means that that Europe is not really better prepared now if uh, we have a new situation uh, of uh, of mass migration. Uh, I mean, or more refugees coming from 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 the east. But but also at the same time, we we are preparing. Or we need to prepare for for a new wave coming from from the south. So so in many ways, what you're saying it seems like uh, we're not really better prepared. Um, on the administrative side, because we rely on the generosity of uh, of kind of the civil society, uh, and and the challenge there is, of course, do we will will we have the same generosity if migrants are coming further from um, our culture uh, and so on? Exactly, and for how long can you rely on that generosity? I think that's the crucial yes. aspect. I think people on, in general have proven that they are very generous, and I think we have to acknowledge that. But it provides a huge burden on people also, and we have to also acknowledge that. And it's a burden that perhaps they can shoulder when you're talking about two or three months. But once you start mm. talking about two, three, four years, then it becomes perhaps a burden that is too big for people to carry individually, especially when it comes with the energy crisis, when it comes to economic crisis and everything else on top of it. Then... Mm. Um, I think the state needs to be, and the European Union, but also individual states, need to be more involved in managing this issue and not rely so much on individuals. Individuals can do that for a certain amount of time for the state to get prepared, but eventually the state has to take over. Otherwise, this is not going to be solved um, without conflicts, I think. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can say a little bit of, about what... Um uh, what what Europe and the member states should do to improve this um, this administrative capacity? Because I guess that there could be some different levels uh, of competence here. Something has to be be kind of taken care of the on the EU level, and other things on more on the national level, and maybe maybe even at the local level. I think ultimately a lot of these competences are at the domestic level. So Europe can help to coordinate things, but Europe doesn't hold the competences, for instance, to build housing, to provide schooling or healthcare. All of those are not competences of the European Union. And the European Union can help coordinate these matters and also help in terms of forward planning, help in terms of the scenario building, all of those kind of things where Europe has a global overview over what might happen and help individual member states. But ultimately, it is for individual member states then to provide those 
uh, public goods like housing, like schooling, like healthcare, like access to the labor market, because that's the next thing. It's it's all nice and well to put people up in your in your living room for a while, but you know if that lasts three or four years, those people also need to be integrated in the labor market. They don't just want to hang out in somebody's sofa for four years. You know, <laughs> um, we have to think that these are human beings that also have a right to 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 life and, and to to live, mm-hmm. and, and 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 member states need to ensure that they're able to do all of these things because otherwise you have a very conflictual situation where you have a deteriorating economic situations and people feel hard done by having to part with all of this generosity. And on the other hand, you've got Ukrainians who um, would like to develop their own life, but who can't because they're not provided with all those opportunities. So I think that's really the issue that we're going to face long term if the situation lasts. And I think most people are agreed that this is going to last at least two years. And I think that's mm. where member states need to do a lot more in terms of the planning of all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. But another question is the distinction or the, the distinction between refugees, of course, that we have to help in a crisis situation when it's war. And then you have also migration. And there is um, migration that is not economically motivated, it could be security motivated, but not necessarily giving the status of refugee. So so there you have, have also the challenge of how to deal with that, how to have controlled migration. Um, so um, I wonder uh, now, previously, before the Ukraine war, um, the EU has also relied on bilateral agreements with third countries like Turkey, Morocco, um, and in order to have a system where you can manage um, the migration flows in a controlled way, how important do you think that these types of of, um, of agreements are? Is this something that that Europe has to rely on, or is it uh, is it a problematic um, uh, way of of solving the, the uh, trying to solving the issue? Yeah, I think if we look at the agreement with Turkey in particular. It is an agreement that came out of an um, emergency situation, if you like. Um, yeah. uh, initially, it was actually an emergency situation for Turkey in the sense that obviously the wars, uh, first in, in Iraq, but not so much in Iraq, later than in, in Syria, really um, drove a lot of people into Turkey. And President Erdogan, he was sort of trapped in his own discourse because President Erdogan initially did... The same thing as Angela Merkel did. He said, you know, we have to help our brothers. Uh, also from the Islamist perspective, um, uh, you have to help your, 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 your yeah, the, the, the people that you are connected to. So he allowed a lot of them to come in. But of course, Turkey, unlike European countries, is not a country that is a member of the Geneva Convention. It's not a country that is fulfilling European standards and how all of those refugees would be treated. So it's more a case that they were tolerated, but they were allowed in. But with the amount of people that then suddenly arrived, Turkey was totally overwhelmed. Turkey couldn't deal with the amount of people that actually arrived. So... Some people have been suggesting that uh, some of the migration wave also came out of that necessity from Turkey to start getting rid of some of those people because Mm. they couldn't handle them very well. Some people suggested that, in fact, Turkey was also behind some of those waves, that they also pushed people into Greece. Certainly, there was an element 
of people wanting to leave Turkey, for sure. There were people also that weren't in the best conditions in Turkey, but there was probably also an element that it was becoming politically difficult for President Erdogan to keep them in Turkey. So pushing them into Greece was also a good way of, of, of relieving the political pressure, especially as the Turkish economy started to be negatively affected and was causing a lot of burden on the Turkish economy. So in that situation where you had a partner in inverted commas that was pushing the migrants in your direction, the EU could have reacted by pushing them out. And to a certain extent, that's what the Greeks were doing at some point. We have to acknowledge that because they were also overwhelmed by the numbers that were arriving. Also, I have to remember, Greece was in a very difficult situation where they were asked to make a lot of cuts, budget cuts, in order to stay in the euro and everything else. So there was a big economic crisis. On top of that, they had huge numbers to deal with. So Europe was also turning a blind eye to it, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Perhaps also because there was a certain element of guilty conscience in Europe, because they had just asked them to do all sorts of things that now meant that they don't have the kind of money, perhaps, to always fulfill European standards in terms of dealing mm -hmm. with them. Um, but also because I think increasingly there was an understanding that the Turks were pushing them also in their direction intentionally, intentionally pushing them into Greece. Now, in that situation, I guess uh, Angela Merkel had that idea initially, and then it was taken up by Europe to have a deal with Turkey that they are going to provide them with money, which is going to help them, I guess, to house them. There's going to be the one-to-one -one deal where in return for taking some of the illegal ones back, they would then be given opportunities for ones to, to really enter to the normal channel. So we don't have that dis disorderly um, uh, way of, of, of getting across the Mediterranean. Um, but obviously long term, that is only a solution until the situation, of course, in Syria becomes more acceptable, because this is not a long term solution. This is just a, a crisis management, if you like. It's not a long term solution to the problem because the root cause is still there. The, mm. the, the, the civil war in Syria is not solved. Um, and Turkey, to an extent, has also managed to get a lot of political concessions out of Europe, because one of the things that we found when we wrote an article about the, the kind of um, a situation in which Turkey was really um, pressurizing Europe into this deal mm -hmm. is that some of the biggest concessions um, that Turkey got were really going unnoticed. And some of the biggest concessions was actually their role that they were subsequently playing in the Syrian war in terms mm -hmm. of entering into Syria with their own troops in terms of attacking the Kurds. And Europe was also partially turning a blind eye to that too. So that mm -hmm. was some of the concessions they were getting in, in, in return. So mm -hmm. we can certainly see that, uh, that the situation um, is very difficult. It's not a long-term situation, not a long-term situation, uh, solution. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the agreement that we have with, uh, with uh, or that Spain and also the EU has with Morocco is, is a little bit of a long term uh, because it has has endured for, for So this is a different. Of course, Morocco is not has not the same experience, the same uh, migration um, pressure uh, like like Turkey due to, to the Syrian war. But still, there are a lot of, of people also coming to to 
passing through Morocco or trying to pass through Morocco. Um, And they are also, I mean, this agreement has been there for a while. So that has been seen as more of a long-term solution. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. I mean, there's two, in fact. There's there's the Moroccan one that Spain had initially, and then, of course, Mm. there's the Libyan one that Italy has had for for a number of years. And initially, Italy had that uh, agreement already with with Colonel Gaddafi before the war in Libya, mm-hmm. and and the Spanish had ha- have had that agreement with Morocco for a while, and that agreement is is sometimes used in a similar way to put pressure also on on, on Spain and on on Italy at times when Morocco wasn't happy about. Uh, Spanish policy, let's say, to the mm-hmm. West Sahara and so on, suddenly migration streams were also going up and, and the agreement wasn't... <laughs> so So all of those things were always happening, but they were never happening to the same kind of large extent that Turkey was playing this also, because, right. of course, we are not talking about the same type of numbers and about the same type of leverage that those countries would have. But, of course, those agreements have been in place for a while and they've been seen as important because, in a sense... You have three main migration routes into Europe from Africa. One that goes through Morocco, one that goes through Libya, and another one that goes through Turkey. Um, mm-hmm. At various points over the last 30 to 40 years, one of those three was the biggest and the other two were smaller, but mm-hmm. it then kind of changes over time depending on political circumstances and also political leadership in those countries. So, yeah. But those are the three main entry points into Europe, so those are always going to be the the countries that Europe will be most interested to have an agreement with. Mm-hmm. The EU is is often criticized for kind of uh, creating this fortress Europe with with its kind of policies towards migration and and that um, it's focusing more on security rather than developing a migration policy that is based on human rights. Uh, perhaps not focusing enough on root causes. So w- what is your views on this? And, and um, how could uh, we, we, both the EU and the European countries, be better at balancing between these concerns, kind of the concern for of security and helping people in need? Yes, I think that's a very difficult question in the sense that... Um, the EU is always criticized, and that is true, as you rightly say, but the EU is also criticized because it is the EU as the only entity in the entire world that puts an emphasis on human rights in, in terms of migration policy. If we go outside of the EU context, there's no international actor that puts any emphasis on human rights whatsoever. Uh, if we look at the United States, no, they don't put any uh, emphasis. If we look at the Gulf countries, like Saudi Arabia has never put any emphasis on human rights. If we look at uh, Australia, if we look at any any entity, any country, any regional organization, if we look at the uh, organization of Islamic states, they don't put any emphasis on human rights either. So in fact, it is the EU that is the only organization that puts any emphasis on human rights at all. And as a result of that, obviously, it is opening itself up also to criticism of hypocrisy, where, in a sense, you're talking about human rights, but you're not always fully fulfilling your own standards. And I think that is true. But I think it is true because it is, in fact, quite unique in terms of putting an emphasis on human rights. Now, yeah, that's right. can that can that be improved? Yes, I think, of course, it can be improved. And, and if we look at the instruments that the EU has been pushing for, over the last couple of years, a lot of them have improved human rights. But what a lot of them have done is that 
mainly focusing on the people that have already entered Europe. So if we look at the standards for refugees or even for failed asylum seekers that have gone through the system, the, their rights inside of the EU have increased over the last 30 years quite considerably compared to what we had 30 years ago. The problem is, of course, at the border. And partially, this is a problem also related precisely to the rights. Because as you're increasing the rights inside, it also then means that you're becoming more attractive as a destination mm. for others to, to, to follow. That means that the EU, in order to limit uh, the, the burden that you might want to call it, um, is then dealing with it at the border in a way that it wants to limit the numbers that can access this. And this is very clear. We see that in Morocco, we see that in Libya, and we certainly see that with Turkey. The EU, also because of the uh, Schengen travel-free area, is in a sense reliant on there being a relatively orderly way in which that is, <laughs> is handled. Because, of course, as we've seen very quickly, if it's done quite disorderly, you see that uh, Schengen borders immediately come down. And that also then damages the political in achievements inside of the European Union. So politicians are then, of course, very careful that while increasing the rights, that uh, in a sense, um, this doesn't create a political crisis in Europe where, where all the borders come down and, and that causes then also economic problems for the European Union once the borders okay. are coming down. So it is very complicated to achieve that balance I think it gets only more complicated as more countries start voting in far-right parties into the parliament. That is making the situation ever more complicated because, of course, some of those parties are not even in favor of having many human rights protections, let's be honest about it. Um, if we look at um, the former interior minister of Italy, Salvini, um, he was priding himself for not allowing any humanitarian boats to enter Italian ports. So um, that is a potential political problem that we're going to have in the future, uh, as there will be more far-right parties entering parliament, perhaps also governments. This is a problem that we might be facing, that, that there will be less of an emphasis in various national parliaments on human rights precisely, and then perhaps even mm. uh, an aversion to human rights in that sense. So that is something that we have to watch out for. That's why it's also, I guess, important while emphasizing human rights to make sure that it can be digested politically. And with digested, I mean that we don't have over-representation of far-right parties in various parliaments. Mm. Mm. This is, of course, very kind of sensitive to discuss security and migration. But in, in these times uh, where the where recession looming, uh, we have the war in Europe. Of course, um, there is we have to, to kind of discuss this together. Um, but I wonder now, um, the last thing I would, would like to kind of discuss a little bit is like, because we know that a new wave of migration probably will come also from the south. Um, and it could happen in parallel to a new refugee crisis from from Ukraine if the war kind of uh, ex ex um, uh, continues over a long period and, and it gets intensified. Um, so in such a situation, I just wonder, um, what do you think will be the implication? How, how will it affect Europe's kind of way or, or, or um, ability to kind of balance between short-term security measures and investment in, in kind of more long-term handling of the root causes of migration. 
because this is um, it looks uh, like right now that we kind of thinking thinking a little bit more short term because we have to handle the crisis that is is, is kind of unfolding um, but we know that if we are not prepared for for handling this in a better way it could uh, it could be uh, have have very um, severe implications yes absolutely i think that that's absolutely right and i think ultimately it has to start from the realization that europe is doing a lot in the world and it should do a lot i i think that is right but ultimately cannot be successful if it doesn't have strong partners in the world who are helping to deal with that. And I think that's where perhaps long term Europe needs to build up those partners that it can deal with. It's not always easy. Turkey is not always an easy partner to handle, for instance, mm-hmm. but it is a necessary partner that we have those countries that are helping the EU that perhaps we're also pushing them towards accepting human rights standards towards ratifying the Geneva Convention, towards perhaps accepting European standards of refugee protection and having those stronger partners outside um, will make it much easier for everyone to, to in, in effect, um, uh, protect those human rights for everyone. I think Europe on its own is too small and not powerful enough to really mm. do and shoulder that on its own. But Europe has other levers, and that is developing strong partners that, that can also help in that. Now, obviously, it requires them to want to help, but I think there is openings because while I've criticized, for instance, Turkey here in terms of what they've done with the refugee crisis, you also have to acknowledge the efforts that have been made by Turkey mm. and by other countries and that they are making So I think there's potential here to bring them in as partners so that they can actually help Europe and push in the same direction. So I think mm. we need to, uh, in a sense, build on those momentums. And then, and mm. then I think um, we can find longer term, uh, in a sense, solutions for, for the root causes also. And maybe the partnership, um, that, that the partnership with Africa will also be important in, in this That's absolutely crucial. Ultimately, a lot of um, future demographic development is happening in Africa. A lot of potential conflict is happening in Africa. So we need to have strong partners in Africa. I think that is something that we cannot do without. This was actually all we have time for in this episode of uh, The World Stage. Thank you so much, Christian, for for giving us your insights on on these issues. Um, We are likely to continue this discussion. It's a a very topical uh, topical issue. Um, If you like this podcast, uh, please let other people know about it and subscribe to it so you can uh, listen to other episodes from The World Stage. But for now, thank you and goodbye.